When Liberty Valance walked around, the men would step aside. Because the point of a gun was the only law that Liberty understood. When it came to shooting straight and fast, he was mighty good. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. And for those who are unaware, my co-host, Luke Savage, is recovering from a medical procedure. He is doing fine. No need to worry. But he's getting some well-deserved rest now. So like Richard Roper when Roger Ebert fell ill, I am welcoming a guest host into the Michael and Us coven. She is contributing editor and podmaster general for Current Affairs magazine. It is Ashling McRae. Hello, thank you for joining. Hi, I uh, can uh, not confirm, definitely not true, that I poisoned Luke Savage <laughs> so I could usurp him as co-host of the Michael and Us podcast. That that did not happen. Oh, that's that's so thrilling to hear that you did that because, first of all, we've been trying to figure out you know a way to get Luke out of the picture for a long time. Uh, and secondly, whenever I invite someone to be a guest on the podcast, I, I always... Uh, I, I, I always fear that the, the mere act of doing that is like an insult. Like, I always fear that I'll, they'll respond being like, of course, I'm not going to do that. Why would I go on the Michael and Us podcast? What do you think I am? Before we get to the movie, I'd like to pick your brain just a little bit about two recent articles that you wrote for Current Affairs. The first is called Satanic Panics and the Death of Mythos. And this was inspired by a period of panic and demonization from the evangelical right towards tabletop games like Dungeons and Dragons. Now, in this article, you build a dichotomy between these conflicting concepts of mythos and logos. Could you briefly describe what those are? Yeah, well, I think the first thing to point out is that I used some Greek words. So that means that it's very smart and important. Yeah. Uh, basically, took this from a uh, scholar of comparative theology, I believe, called Karen Armstrong, who basically put up this division between logos, which is basically the world of logical or rational things, things like uh, science and reason and uh, observable truths about the world, and mythos, which is basically everything that cannot just be explained by the limits of human observations. So kind of a similar idea is the idea of the sublime, if you've ever heard of that. So that's basically anything that feels transcendental, that feels either a religious experience or a spiritual experience, or something that you can't quite explain in words or rituals or emotions that kind of go beyond things that are rationally explainable. So basically I took that idea and, well, it wasn't me who took that idea. It was uh, Joseph Laycock who wrote this book called Dangerous Games about uh, Dungeons and Dragons and the Satanic Panic. And he pointed out that evangelical Christians at this time had a view of religion that was very, very Logos-centered. So everything was very literal. If the Bible says that the earth was built in seven days, that means it was literally built in seven days. It's not a metaphor. It's not a way of explaining things that goes beyond human reason. It's an actual scientific fact. And that means that you have to go looking for evidence that, you know, fossils are fake and you have to build a creationist museum and you have to use all these kind of pseudo-scientific ex explanations, these logical reasons why we know the earth was built in seven days. And I kind of took that idea and looked at how a lot of cultural criticism or ideas of how art works or how anything works today is kind of wrapped up in that same logic that everything has to be viewed 
through the realm of explaining things. When it comes to movies, for example, looking in very literal terms at plot and plot holes and observable events, right? So uh, I talked for a little bit about YouTube film criticism, right? And I, I, I didn't want to be too hard on internet film criticism because I think a lot of it can be explained by the fact that there's just so much stuff out there and a lot of it is being produced by people who are very young. So I don't necessarily always want to be like super like, these people are idiots. Sometimes I see like comments uh, about films from someone and I'll say like, this person doesn't know anything. This person's a moron. And then you see their handle and they're called like Joey 2002. And it's like, oh, I'm getting mad at at a literal child. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of film criticism in particular tends to focus on the literal and it doesn't look at things like mise-en-scene like the emotions that you get the themes anything that's broader than the literal things that are happening in front of you so some of the most popular types of quote-unquote film criticism you see on youtube or on social media for example are these like ending explained videos you know why is jack nicholson in the photo at the end of the shining is there like a, a time travel mechanism that we can can see is deckard a replicant at the end of blade runner or you have these, uh, what is it, cinema sins, the like, uh, the the videos where they just go through and try and find every plot hole that they can. Yeah, like every everything wrong with Batman and Robin in thirty minutes, and like, yeah. it, it, it'll always be like, um, well, how does he have a whole cave under his house? Like, how does the house just not cave in in this big hollow space underneath? Like, that's the criticism. Yeah, the thing is, I'm not necessarily against people getting really, really into the minutia of stuff. I kind of think it's just and I understand to an extent if you're really really into Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or the Marvel Universe or whatever and you really really want to think about okay well how exactly does you know does this person get from point A to point B and that people get really really into the the lore right but my piece was basically about this is not really what art is for like the whole point of art is that you are able to have an experience that is beyond literal observable things and that doesn't have to be you know some super pretentious thing of you know i watched a a goddard movie and i felt my spirit rising out of my body or anything but it can just be like i had this experience where i kind of forgot about the world for two hours or i just find you know this performance really uh it, it just it just gives me a little flavor of something i remember watching a few months ago a kiristami film for the first time i watched um close up it's basically a sort of fictionalized ish like semi documentary about this guy who basically claimed to be a famous film director in order to befriend and perhaps take advantage of his family but there's this one moment where it's just a camera on a suburban street and you see like a bottle just roll down a hill And that's literally it. And I remember like that in particular sticking in my mind hours, days, weeks afterwards. I still think about it sometimes. It's literally just a bottle rolling down a hill. And I think when we focus on very literal minded stuff like plot and events and, you know, oh, how did how did this character get from, you know, the uh, Varekian forest to the the temple of Flung? in i'm really bad at coming up <laughs> with, with invented names how did they get there in two minutes you're kind of missing the the point of why films are good yeah i mean it's such a tired truism and you hear it all the time that you know plot is the most important part of a movie uh, script is the most important part like people say it and 
you kind of don't question it because it just seems like, yeah, sure, the, the script is bad and therefore the movie is bad. But like, how many films can you think of where the plot is actually something you remember and care about? I don't know. When I think of movies that I value primarily for the plot, it's like Casablanca, maybe. And then the rest of the movies, it's just individual scenes that I remember. It's performances. I don't remember what From Here to Eternity is about, but I remember the shot of the two of them making out on the beach. Have you ever seen um, uh, anything by Hong Sang-soo? I've only seen one of his movies, but I know th- I know that he's somebody who works very fast and instinctive and like churns out three or four movies a year. Yeah, I mean, basically his thing is he just takes a bunch of scenes and I think he just writes them on the fly and they're very mundane it's just about you know two characters maybe one of them has like a troubled marriage or they have some anxieties about something and the characters just talk and there's something like those are somehow more memorable than a lot of films that you know supposedly have a great and very involved plot plot is overrated and vibe is underrated i think you know i, th- I think ultimately exactly. that, that that's actually why we engage with art ultimately is to embrace ourselves in a particular vibe but to that kind of youtube criticism you were mentioning i mean i know that when i was when i was a younger man and even still now i i can fall into a trap of feeling very frustrated if i don't get it because if there's something that's cryptic and it seems like there's a meeting a meaning that's eluding me you know i'm i'm thinking of a movie like tarkovsky's mirror or you know what even something like mulholland drive where it's like okay wait a minute how does this all fit together and if i can if i can unlock this if i can get the code that puts everything into place then i will understand the movie and then i will master it have you watched the guy who does the like 4 hour explainer videos of the David Lynch films? You know, I haven't because I've come to a, a point in my life when I've come to value my own <laughs> my own explanations for these, the, the, to value the vibe more than uh, more than unlocking it as if it were Memento or Pulp Fiction or something like that. Yeah, and I think part of the the joy of it is having that tension because if you if you don't get something immediately, that means that you think about it, mm-hmm. right? And you have these moments where you are just washing dishes or whatever and it just comes to you and you start trying to kind of tease things out or maybe you're drawn to like watch it another time and and that's a valuable experience right sometimes that can be a more valuable experience than just like oh it was the guy who he uh he had the time machine and that's how he could do it i also like that you point out that moment from close up because uh, so often you see i mean on Twitter, it seems every two weeks, there's somebody who goes viral saying something like, we shouldn't have sex scenes in movies because they are gratuitous and they don't move the plot forward. I, I, I have to say I disagree. Um, when I was trying to come up with uh, films t- uh, for us to discuss, uh, one of the top contenders, probably the, the second best my, my b choice was the 80s hardcore movie anal birth of burt oh goodness i i've never i've never even heard of it <laughs> <laughs> uh, i have a friend who is extremely into uh like it's similar stuff to you like like very uh sleazy yeah. new york 70s stuff and uh yes it's a, a film in which a uh, man uh, has a uh, a burt of, of burt and ernie fame doll 
inserted into himself and and then and then it comes out again and uh i think that's a, a cinematic experience as much as any other i mean i'm gonna put that on my netflix queue right now <laughs> uh but but all that sex scene discourse it's like well first of all just because it doesn't move the plot forward doesn't mean it's not worth doing and that kind of thinking would look at a scene like that one with the water bottle in close-up and say well why is this here it's not moving the thing from point a to point b and there's something i think very um it speaks to a to a sickness in our society that would think that way where if it's like if it's not moving us from point a to point b you know it's it's uh it's managerial thinking yeah i mean it's if you want to watch a a sequence of events you know you can watch a documentary you can just look at normal things in life Uh, like part of the point of watching a film is that you are possibly able to go beyond just normal events that you see uh, that have a sort of a function. I also want to ask you about uh, one more article, and this is perhaps less heady abstract territory than that, but I want to ask about this because it's a subject who I don't think has ever come up on this podcast before, which is a horrible oversight, given how large he has loomed in the American psyche these past four or five years. Of course, it's Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, uh, everyone's favorite <laughs> right-wing newspaper cartoonist. Now, I uh, read some Dilbert when I was a child because it was kind of like the grown-up cartoon, you know? I've noticed this is like... um, Did you ever play the Final Fantasy games when you were a kid? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. There's a moment in uh, one Final Fantasy game where about two-thirds of the way through there's this big twist where it turns out all the characters who have all kind of met by chance they were all in the same orphanage when they were children and i found this with a uh, dilbert kids is i thought i was extremely weird <laughs> for like reading these kind of comic strips for adult uh workers yeah. <laughs> when i was like 11 years old and then i got would go on twitter and basically everyone who has a podcast now was like a weird kid who was reading dilbert well as, as you mentioned your dad had a dilbert book i guess and i yeah. think my parents did too it just seems that every boomer or older gen x adult got a book of dilbert cartoons at one point maybe for a birthday present i don't know that, like that's how popular dilbert was at the time and it is kind of the best of both worlds because there are funny cartoons cartoon animals in it but also it's like a peek into the grown-up world it's like this isn't like charlie brown this isn't jokes for kids this is jokes for for people who yeah who work yeah i think i was in that moment where you are kind of getting into your i guess i was preteens, but i was starting to become aware that there was a world out there that had you know uh, sophisticated things and you know films that were not just Disney films mm. and I was you know a little bit above my uh, my classmates who were still <laughs> stuck with their mere childish things yes. I was I was glimpsing uh, the world of business like a grown-up now was Scott Adams always right-wing or was that was that activated later on I think so it's a tricky thing because he came up in the sort of uh, I mean, is starting in the 80s, I believe, but kind of really getting into into gear in the 90s. And so it was that end of history era where, in the mainstream at least, you didn't really need to think in terms of left wing or right wing. It was just everyone kind of going to the business factory and people were not so concerned. And again, this is a generalization, right? But the mainstream culture, I think, was like, well, everything, all the big issues, those are kind of sorted now. We're just going to sort of maybe tweak some tax policies here maybe you know manage this uh, thing a bit here mm-hmm. but ultimately it was all about hey you, you've been to these offices these days it's you ever been to a meeting it's, it's crazy stuff and i have several of his 
books and when I was going through them for the article. A lot of it is just very, like, he has a lot of observations and they're mostly just kind of hack stand-up stuff. You know, it's very like, how come you park in a driveway and drive on the parkway kind of thing. <laughs> um, there's some, like, kind of reductive stuff about gender, but it's not in a proto-MRA way. It's more just like, ah, the broads. It's in the ambient kind of Tim Allen way that dominated yeah, culture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think he just kind of birthed, or his, his political consciousness, I guess, was birthed in that era I don't think he thinks of himself as a capital P political person. He was just very concerned with things like business mindset and ideas and human persuasion. Because he wrote books, like in addition to all his comics, he wrote uh, serious or semi-serious books like The Dilbert Principle, which is also one that was everywhere in the 90s. You can find it in little free libraries all over town now that where you, were, I guess, learned marketing techniques. or Well, it was funny because, and this is part of the point I made in, in the piece, was that he kind of got into this like joking but not really thing mm. so a lot of those books are they're kind of comedy books and he's cu- he's able to sit on this fence where he's like I'm kind of making a point but I'm kind of not like I could pass this off as a joke if I wanted there are definitely even in those early books some some slightly strange things so in uh, the Dilbert Future which is a book where he kind of predicts future trends 90% of the book is uh, kind of comedy and then at the end there's this really weird new agey one chapter where he says that the uh, theory of evolution will be debunked in our lifetimes because he knows from his experiences that time is not linear and he's kind of going even in that part you can tell he's very serious about it but he'll occasionally be like "Eh, but what do I know I'm just a I'm just a dumb cartoonist and he's able to kind of he's able to kind of maintain that but I think that thing of joking but not really it becomes harder and harder to do that in a climate that is more and more polarized and that more and more asks you to kind of vocalize some sort of principles or something you actually believe in regardless of its you know validity or stupidity it's too bad because i think he could have been a great tribune for the left you know with his unsparing depiction of the banality you know the the everyday desperation of workplace culture you know living under the thumb of a tyrannical boss who who was that boss character with the hair that stuck out on yeah yeah Yeah, i mean you know uh, one of the great villains in in the western canon and yet yet he went the other direction i did see some like i feel like he did some comics about feminism or about woke culture or you know like the more explicitly right-wing stuff started to infect his art a little bit yeah i haven't seen many of the more recent strips I do remember um, a piece, uh, I will look it up, I think maybe it was on the all, I forget, but it was it was uh, someone else wrote a piece pointing out that in his later strips he comes to empathise more and more with the pointy-haired boss, and he also <laughs> makes him more handsome. Oh my god, like what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that tells you something, right? And that the, the strips in a way, they feel like a... Um, an outlet like often they they will put the strips up in offices right mm-hmm. you know that there's that old um saying like if voting changed anything they'd make it illegal yes. right if dilbert strips changed anything they'd make it illegal <laughs> right you're it's become something that you're able to kind of laugh at and go like oh i mean deadlines am i right and then you just go back to your cubicle and you feel very sad except you don't even have a cubicle anymore you have to go to your your hot desk and be sad out of the flame and fury of the frontier the old west lives again as only John Ford can recreate it. People with wonderful characters who have become legend in their own time. Of them all, two are the most memorable. 
Liberty Valance, and the man who shot him. That's my stake, Valance. Well, you heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet, strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Valance. Now, you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town, or tonight you'll be out in that street alone. Well, I'm happy that you chose one of my very favorite movies to discuss, which is John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962. I really do think it is the ultimate American movie, so I'm glad that you, a Brit, and me, a Canadian, will have a chance to discuss it. Um, What made you choose this movie? Like you, it is one of my favorite films. It has... I mean, we were talking about vibes earlier. It has an impeccable vibe. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has brilliant performances. I just really love this era where there are so many great character actors who are even in, like, very minor roles. Like, uh, Lee Van Cleef is in this film, and I think he has maybe, like, one and a half lines. Like, most of his role is just to, like, stand in the corner and smolder. What a face, you know? Do you know what smizing is? No, I'm not familiar with that phrase. Okay, smizing is a term coined, I believe, by Tyra Banks, the host of America's Next Top Model. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is something she very, very much emphasized with the models on that show, that to smize is to smile with your eyes. But it's not just it's not just smiling. It's kind of bringing out this smoldering energy, just like narrowing your eyes a little bit and just blasting charisma through your eyes. <laughs> and Lee Van Cleef always has that in every movie. His, his acting is just like 80 percent eye acting. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of smoldering charisma, this is the first movie to bring together two powerful symbols of Americana. John Wayne and James Stewart. And in the film, they together represent two forces that I think the film implies have shaped America. Uh, Stewart is a young law school graduate. I want to say young. He is easily, he's like 55 in this movie. Yeah, I mean, this is, (laughs) you know, every time I watch this movie, it kind of sneaks up on me because whenever I watch it for the first 20 or 30 minutes I'm thinking and you know it's deliberate I think on John Ford's part but I'm thinking wow this really is creaky isn't it because it starts with him in the present day or well not really the present day but it starts with him as an old man and then he's flashing back to himself as a young man and he says something in the narration like I was young and I went just out of law school and had idealism in my eyes or something like that and and yeah he's I guess he's supposed to be like 25 and you know they make no effort whatsoever to make him look uh at all younger than 50 Uh, but yes he is ostensibly a young law school graduate who arrives in the small western town of Shinbone, and when he enters this territory, he's robbed and beaten by a fearsome outlaw named Liberty Valance, played by Lee Marvin, who even the local authorities feel powerless to stop. The other totem of Americana is John Wayne as Tom Donovan, a two-fisted rancher who is the real authority figure in town, much more so than the local law enforcement Stewart, a young attorney, vows to bring Liberty Valance to justice. John Wayne believes there's no such thing as law out here in the West, and it's only maintained via force or the threat of force. 
And one more key fact about Liberty Valance is he's a hired gun of the big city cattle barons. And there's a political dispute raging in the background uh, concerning a debate over statehood. The local farmers want statehood. The big oligarchs don't. How did you first see this movie and what were your first impressions of it when you saw it? Uh, so I actually saw it probably about a year ago. So when I think it was when lockdown started, you know, I was trying to find a project and I thought like, well, the way I've uh, seen films has been very haphazard. So what I started doing was I decided to start in 1927, um, somewhat arbitrary of a year. And I know by your taste in films, maybe that's a little late to start the, the history of film. But I decided like every week I was going to look at a year in film and maybe pick, you know, a few things that I, that I hadn't seen that I thought I ought to see. So I ended up watching it. And I mean, the first thing that uh, kind of struck me was, you know, I'd seen a few Westerns. I'd seen a few John Ford films and it... it what first struck me was that how kind of claustrophobic it feels. Uh, there's very little uh, of the kind of big, wide open spaces. I think the only time you really see it is you see a glimpse of uh, John Wayne's kind of homestead. And obviously he kind of represents more of that old frontier vibe. So you see a, a little bit of desert very briefly, but most of it, it takes place indoors. It's also black and white, which I think somehow kind of adds to that musty vibe. <laughs> like the, the film almost like smells musty and I don't mean that in a bad way. And afterwards, in a way, it's, it's a very kind of tight story performances are very on point it's very funny in parts like you kind of forget that films are allowed to be funny in a way that is not just like a, a character turning to another character and saying like uh yeah uh i guess so um the joss whedon <laughs> banter yeah exactly <laughs> so you just kind of live in this little town and you can see the themes and i, I remember thinking about it for ages afterwards uh, I had my own kind of crank theory about like the ending, which I'll get, which you know maybe we'll get to, and I'll get. We'll to, get. Like, we'll get to it. Yes. On a cork board. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just it was just a film that I, I I kind of fell in love with, and I mean, how can you not fall in love with a film that has you know Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and Lee Marvin and represents everything about the. Uh, birthing of the united states and all that that implies well there are a lot of other characters in the film who i think all represent some facet of america there's pompey played by woody strode who is john wayne's friend and assistant and who is the town's only black resident uh race is a kind of understated but ever-present factor in his treatment you know he's this very vital force in the town he's a kind of beloved force in the town but a big deal is never made of it but he's always like in the kitchen at the restaurant because he's not allowed in the actual restaurant or yeah. he's like sitting on the steps outside the bar except at the very end when he's allowed into the bar once yeah there's a great moment where he's in the school that Jimmy Stewart's character has kind of set up and he's asked to recite the Declaration of Independence and he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And then he kind of falters and Jimmy Stewart says, like, that all men are created equal. And he kind of goes like, 
uh, yeah, sorry, I just forgot about that. And it's very subtle, but it's just like this little wink and a nod that, you know, clearly he knows that this is bullshit from his own experience. So yeah, it's something that's under the, kind of just under the surface that it never feels like it has to talk down to you or explain to you what the scenario is, but it's always there. There's also Dutton Peabody, played by Edmund O'Brien, who's the alcoholic editor of the local newspaper. He is kind of a comedy relief figure until the final moments when he heroically musters the full power of his rhetorical gifts to argue for statehood in Congress. Another comedy relief character is the Marshal, played by Andy Devine, who is hapless and ineffectual uh, for the most part, especially when dealing with Liberty Valance. And there is the love interest, the third corner in the love triangle, Hallie Stoddard, played by Vera Miles, who uh, I, I suppose it would be fair to say that she represents America herself, torn between these conflicting forces. Uh, I want to get to your uh, crackpot theory about the ending, because like, what's most famous about the film is the big twist in it. So I guess we're entering spoiler territory here, and I do encourage people to to watch this movie. This, is, this isn't one of the bad ones. People should actually watch this one. But towards the end, Liberty Valance, who is this agent of chaos uh, he's a figure who gives lie to the idea that we actually have freedom and democracy in this country and he's in the pocket of these big cattle oligarchs finally he challenges the james stewart character to a duel in the streets and unexpectedly james stewart beats him in this duel he shoots liberty valance and he feels overcome with guilt that he's now being pushed to a political career uh, he's being sent to Washington and will eventually become a senator, maybe even a vice president one day, with blood on his hands. Liberty Valance may have been a horrible man, but he was still a man. And John Wayne shows up at Congress at the end to tell him that, actually, you didn't shoot Liberty Valance, I did. I was, I was on the grassy knoll. But, Tom, why did you do it? Why? Cold-blooded murder. But I can live with it. Hallie's happy. She wanted you alive. But you saved my life. I wish I hadn't. Tally's your girl now. Go on back in there and take that nomination. You taught her how to read and write. Now give her something to read and write about. The, the common understanding of the ending is that uh, John Wayne actually did do that. I would like to, though, hear your conspiracy theory. Okay, so I think, as you mentioned, these two characters are supposed to represent these two very different kind of beliefs and, and attitudes about a what to do about Liberty Valance, this sort of chaotic character who comes around and, you know, does violence and does whatever he wants. And also kind of de facto what to do about the future of America. Uh, part of the theme is whether or not this uh, ramshackle little frontier town of Shinbone, whether the state that it's in or the region that it's in should become a state. And you can tell that Jimmy Stewart's character, he is someone who very much believes in civilizing this area. And, you know, we can get to the meaning of civilizing in a bit, but he basically believes in founding these liberal institutions, right? So he comes from law school, he comes from the East Coast, he kind of wants to set up a law office because there really isn't any kind of 
bureaucratic or any kind of legal system here. He is shocked that a lot of people there don't know how to read and write, and so he wants to set up a school. He kind of sees the future of Shinbone as being like it is on the East Coast, and we see in the opening scene that is kind of set, you know, after he spent many years as a senator, we see that he's achieved this, right? He goes into Shinbone and it's all these manicured lawns and churches and things. And when he gets to Shinbone, he's kind of made fun of a little bit for this. There's this kind of underlying idea that he's a little bit weak, a little bit feminine. Uh, Lee Marvin's character keeps calling him dude, which at the time it was uh, kind of the equivalent of calling someone a soy boy. <laughs> like it was uh, a term that kind of meant you were, you know, a little bit effeminate and not really rough and ready and ready for the, the ways of the Old West. But it is still quite amusing to see, to see Lee Marvin keep calling him dude. There's also he, uh, to kind of earn his keep, he works in the canteen and so he's always wearing like an apron and there's kind of, you know, th this uh, uh, intimation that he's, you know, a, a little bit feminine and, and, you know, not really suited for the, the world he's entered. And then on the other hand, you have John Wayne, who is very much in, you know, John Wayne mode. He very much believes in, you know, there's there's no law and order. There's only yourself and your gun and, you know, what you can do for yourself. And, you know, if you want to protect other people, then that's fine. But he, he doesn't really believe in building any institutions. And yet we kind of see he's not antagonistic towards Stuart's character, really. Like he kind of makes mm -hmm. fun of him. He kind of sees him as a, you know, a little bit weedy and pathetic really but he he respects that he wants to you know build a school he respects that he's this new force in town and the general interpretation of this movie is that jimmy stewart goes into this duel with liberty valance he's unprepared liberty valance gets shot by the way you could also argue that it's kind of the community who kills liberty valance because uh the town doctor who has just had an argument with him barely even looks at him before he declares yeah. him dead and just like shoves him onto the uh, onto the cart for his body to be burned or whatever they do in those days. And then the community basically tosses out Liberty Valance's two little minions, the Lee Van Cleef <laughs> yeah. character. <laughs> the implication at the end when John Wayne says, you know, actually you didn't shoot Liberty Valance, I did. The general interpretation, I think, is that yes, Jimmy Stewart is the nice civilizing face of the U.S., but he couldn't really have done it without, you know, this dark underbelly, this violence that needed to be done. And I think that, that makes sense to an extent, but I think it makes more sense to say Jimmy Stewart kind of is violent and he kind of, I think he did kill Liberty Balance and here's why. I think it's very telling that this is a Western that has no Native Americans in it. They're not an enemy. They are not there. It is implied that they have been, you know, ethnically cleansed out of the area. They're, they're just not a factor here. Racism also clearly is there, as we see from the, the treatment of Pompey. And Jimmy Stewart's character, he basically thinks, well, if I install law and order here and I install these institutions, then that will make this a good place to live. And there's no kind of reflection on well you're doing this on someone else's land he's not interested in the racism he's not interested in the he's, he's kind of a tyrant in a way like he finds out that a lot of people can't read and write and his response is to set up a school where he says he's just going to teach people how to read and write and the first thing he does is propagandizes about his political opinions <laughs> he takes like a story from the local paper and he says like look well these people say that they should do this but you know you have to go out there and you have to vote this way and he even has written on the back uh, on his chalkboard something like education is the source of law and order 
have you ever heard anything more fascist in your life? Um, so I, I kind of think, in a way, it's not that he is the nice face who is reliant on the violent face. I kind of think he is the violent face. Like, he says, you know, oh, what I want to do with Liberty Valance is I want to put him in jail. Like, is it really that nice to put someone in a box for the rest of their life? He's legitimizing this region as a state and as a legal entity, and he's entrenching the violence, right? And and you look at even the, the nice shinbone in the opening and closing scenes this future of shinbone it's like well you you have this railroad that's pumping filthy coal smoke into the atmosphere you've built these churches and these shops these bullocks of you know united states values uh they built these manicured lawns that god knows how much water you need to make these like lawns in the desert so i don't think his character is opposed to violence i think he embodies violence and when John Wayne says to him, you know, oh, well, actually, uh, you didn't shoot Liberty Valance, I don't think that's him telling the truth. I think his gift to Stuart's character is giving him a clear conscience, saying, no, it was it was me, the, the, the nasty, rude, uh, rough and ready cowboy, not at all like you, you know, uh, you didn't do any violence, you're a, a good man who just wants to civilise the West. And I think it's convenient for him to believe that. But I know the truth, Rance Stoddard is a cold-blooded killer, and Donovan's parting gift to him is to convince him that he isn't my god when you first pitched this idea to me i was skeptical but now i feel like james stewart at the end of the movie my whole worldview is, has been changed and i mean it's true he does he does embody violence with that opening scene where the train comes in and ford's camera just lingers on the smoke that's defiling the atmosphere it's like he he just brings with him an air of corruption uh, after all of his years in Washington, even though he's a kind of sympathetic character. The movie ends on this very beautifully ambivalent note where he's going back to Washington and he's with Hallie, who has married him and grown old with him, who's been kind of downbeat on the whole trip back to Shinbone. And he says to her, you know, what if we went back to Shinbone together? And she says uh, something to him, making making clear that, you know, she she really has always loved John Wayne <laughs> Um, for her whole life, she says, oh, if you only knew how, how much I've dreamed of it. Would you be too sorry if we just up and left Washington? I, I sort of have a hankering to come back here to live. Maybe open up a law office. Rance. If you knew how often I dreamed of it. My roots are here. I guess my heart is here. Yes, let's come back. And, you know, that's a moment that really kind of makes clear the skepticism that the film has and that John Ford has towards not only the idea of progress, like a progress that steamrolls the town and turns it into this bureaucracy, uh, but also to the James Stewart character himself. Yeah, there's a moment at the end where Kelly says to him something like, you know, this place was once a wilderness and now it's a garden. Aren't you proud of that? And, you know, you can kind of take that both ways. You know, it sounds nice on the surface, but to take this, you know, this place that wasn't yours and to try and tame it and make it smaller 
uh, and make it manicured, you know, is is that really something to be proud of necessarily? Okay, I'm I'm actually with you now. I think you're right. I think James Stewart did uh, <laughs> k- kill Liberty Valance uh, because I like that interpretation better. But I mean, I guess it depends on what do you think is more powerful, the idea that Stewart himself destroyed John Wayne or that John Wayne accidentally killed himself, that John Wayne accidentally made himself obsolete because he thought that ushering in this progress would be the right thing to do. Uh, I mean, watching the movie again, uh, knowing that you were going to argue this, I was struck by the fact that Ford does leave it visually ambiguous. I expected it to be clearer on screen, but it's not. Yeah, the um, the duel itself, like, y- you don't see he could have directed it that the thing happens very quickly and then when you see the flashback as John Wayne tells it it becomes clear that he was the one who shot him but I think you can quite easily say that this is this is something that he's invented this is something he's trying to convince Stuart of and you know the famous scene at the end of the movie where Stuart tells all this to the newspaper reporters and then the editor tears it up and says this is the West when the legend becomes fact print the legend to some degree it kind of doesn't even matter if John Wayne actually did do the shooting because what matters is that James Stewart went down in history as having done the shooting so symbolically in this universe he did it he was the one who harnessed the forces of violence and used it to create civilization and whether or not John Wayne did the dirty work for him and whether or not his conscience is clean almost doesn't matter, at least in terms of how Shinbone defines itself. I'm struck by the fact that I've, I spent the first half of this show uh, describing the how the details of plot don't really matter, and now I, I'm spending this time kind of thinking back to the scene where Liberty Valance gets shot and trying to, like, draw little red circles <laughs> around where the bullet holes are, like a like a JFK grassy knoll picture. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think either way, you can see that these two figures, they kind of depend on each other and their their existence and their ability to do what they do is kind of contingent on each other. And I don't necessarily think that my interpretation is at odds with what the film is trying to say. And to be clear, I don't necessarily think that my interpretation is Ford's interpretation. Um, but I think that it's a way, as you said, I don't even necessarily think it matters, like, you know, whose bullet it was so much as looking back at it with a kind of more cynical eye towards Stuart's hapless but nice character and, and whether his intentions and his effects are, are really as nice as they might seem. Well, I would like to close us out with John Ford's interpretation, which comes from the book John Ford, written by Peter Bogdanovich. It is a series of interviews about all of Ford's films. And the passage on The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is uh, several paragraphs long. And I'm just going to read the relevant sections of this interview. Bogdanovich says, one feels, actually, I'll do an impression of Peter Bogdanovich. One feels that your sympathy in Liberty Valance is with John Wayne and the Old West. And Ford goes, wow, Wayne actually, I'm actually not going to do an impression of these guys. Um, <laughs> well, Wayne actually played the lead. Jimmy Stewart had most of the scenes, but Wayne was the central character. The motivation for the whole thing. I don't know. I like them both. I think they were both good characters and I rather like the story. That's all. I'm a hard nosed director. I got a script. If I like it, I'll do it. Or if I say, oh, this is all right, I'll do it. If I don't like it, I'll turn it down. Bogdanovich says, by the end of the picture, though, it seemed very clear that Vera Miles was still in love with Wayne. Well, we meant it that way. 
your picture of the West has become increasingly sad over the years, like the difference in mood, for example, between Wagon Master and Liberty Valance, to which Ford replies, possibly, I don't know, I'm not a psychologist, maybe I'm getting older. So that is John Ford's interpretation of the film. And uh, what I love about that is it goes to show that like so many of the best artists are not, and I'm saying this with love and affection, so many of the best artists aren't actually intellectuals, you know, like they're very instinctive. It would actually be uh, much more tragic, I think, if John Ford could do a whole soliloquy talking about the meaning of this film rather than it it just kind of came out of him. Yeah, well, I think this almost ties back into uh, what we were talking about at the beginning, because like if you could just have a coherent, logical explanation for exactly what you were thinking about when you were making the film and what your intentions were, then you could have just written that down as a a factual idea rather than actually making a whole film which is about much more than the literal ideas that it can be reduced to in words yeah and so much of what's beautiful about the film is in its ambiguity the fact that it actually kind of leaves it open to interpretation to what extent the progress is good or bad you know it's good that liberty valance isn't the de facto leader of the town who can just walk in and steal somebody's steak at the restaurant anytime that he wants but, uh, you know, on the other hand, uh, think think of everything that we've lost. And the degree to which you find that tragic is up to the viewer. Anyway, thank you so much filling in for Luke. Uh, you know, the, th- <laughs> the thing is, I'm sure you know this, beginnings and endings of podcasts are like the most artificial uh, parts of the podcast. Yeah. The, the, the parts where the artifice of it really <laughs> becomes pronounced. How about, I, how about I ask you if there's anything you want to plug? Yeah, so come on over to the Current Affairs podcast if you want. We have uh, discussions about uh, politics and culture. We also do a lot of episodes on our Patreon that are about uh fun things interesting things not so fun things but things that are important so you can find us at www.patreon.com slash current affairs i also write things occasionally in the magazine and uh yeah that's pretty much it and there's a podcast featuring luke and myself talking about a movie almost as good as the man who shot liberty valance which is john stewart's irresistible (laughs) so everyone should certainly check that one out uh, again, thank you for coming on and uh, watch this drive. You ask me why I love her? Well, give me time. I'll explain. Have you seen a Kansas sunset or an Arizona rain? Have you drifted on a bayou down Louisiana way? Have you watched the cold fog drifting over San Francisco Bay? Have you heard of Bob White calling in the Carolina Pines? Or heard the bellow of a diesel in the Appalachia mines? Does the call of the Niagara thrill you when you hear her waters roar? You look with awe and wonder at the Massachusetts shore where men who braved a hard new world first stepped on Plymouth Rock. Do you think of them when you stroll along a New York City dock? Have you seen a snowflake drifting in the Rockies way up high? Have you seen the sun come blazing down from a bright Nevada sky? Have you hailed of the Columbia as you rush into the sea? Or are you headed Gettysburg? Or struggle to be free? <laughs> <laughs>